started. We gotta wait for that. We're on Bible study. We've got live. I think that's the only two buttons I need to push. And we'll probably be starting in ten seconds. We'll see. Hey doctor, how are you? I'm wonderful. What about there you? There we go. Couldn't be better. Here we go. Maple's here, so we gotta get started. We got we gotta get started. That's right. Hey Dad, how are you gonna sit? Right here. Well, you had to sit behind the Now I am guessing that Jim and Linda are not in town. Is that right? I haven't seen them. They haven't commented on Facebook all week, and so... Um, she was holding the baby up north this morning. Who was? She was. Linda. Linda. Okay, well, then they're not here. Hey, Tom, how are you? True. This guy hasn't shaved. I think that's the first time I've ever seen that. This week, I just got lazy. I'll race you. You just keep on going, and we'll see who wins, okay? Okay, good. I want to see it. I want to see it with the beard. And it's going to get cold. It's going to get cold tonight, so... I can't wait to see it. Okay, we're going to get started. I've got the uh, streaming going, so uh, I need that. Uh, Jim and Linda are apparently not here. I didn't realize they were leaving this week, but I'm, I know they told me. I just don't remember it. And um, Paul and Elaine are gone. And uh, Well, anyway, here we go. Um, this is uh, Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things, and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant, who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Got TV written after before verse 37. TV before verse 37. Uh, go ahead and tell me because I'm... Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Vanities. Uh, TV. Turn away from eyes from looking well, at the TV. religious programs. Yeah, well, that's right. There are some good religious programs. One or two. Or Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come here today and to uh, enter into uh, your presence in the opening of your word. And we thank you for this sure word that we have, and we would ask that you would uh, help us to handle it properly and to handle it carefully, not to deviate from it in any way, but to uh, just pursue it as you would have us pursue it. And of course, uh, each one of us is fallible in our ways, and so we're bound to make errors and forgive us of that. Lord, um, we do uh, have prayer requests that have go gone all over the world. You know that. And um, one of them that is in my heart right now is uh, Lothar, who may even be attending right now and from Germany. He uh, is eating better. We thank you for that. He's eating a lot, and uh, he's getting his strength back, so we would pray that the chemo would continue to take care of him. And we've got Sandy right here, who's uh, getting done with her radiation treatments, and we thank you that she's doing well with that. You're very good to us to put us at this time in history, Lord, where we can uh, at least uh, have a chance to go through these things and uh, to uh, be healed if it's your will and if it's uh, the ability of the doctors to do so. Lots of other people with their problems that have emailed in the week ahead. and Please search us out, our hearts, and, and uh, respond to them according to each person's need, all of these people that are out there. And uh, we just love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for this chance to come together. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to have small, small class today, which is good, because um, we have some friends, Mike and Debbie. I don't want to give any more information than that, but they have attended the church, 
and um, I don't want to say where they're from or anything because uh, they're private because of their uh, work. But um, hi, Charlie. Deb made these cookies for the congregation. Hopefully they got there intact. Merry Christmas, Mike and Deb. And they're uh, bis biscochitos, traditional New Mexico cookies. So we got a whole bunch of them here. We got napkins. Eat up, and then uh, whatever we don't eat, we'll have on uh, Sunday as well. So um, here they are. If you want to eat them during class, come and get them. And if not, then we'll eat them after class. And uh, uh, it's good because uh, with just a few people here, it means more for us. So, praise the Lord. And let's see here. We're going to go to Romans. Tell those people that we like Romans Black just... Grouper, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We like <laughs> Black Grouper, and we like um, uh, filet mignon, and yeah. And Red Snapper. Red Snapper. Okay. Yeah, I don't think where they live, you're not going to catch those uh, saltwater fishes. I'll uh, I'll uh, say that much. They may have to go to Speckled Trout. Yeah, speckled Trout. They may have them there. I don't know. Uh, but uh, okay. there you go. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 2 today, oh, and we're going to be in verse 17. Romans 2.17. So let's see here. We're going to start out. Uh, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Uh, this is the beginning of a new paragraph. I'm not going to go back for context because uh, it, it's just a new paragraph. He's been speaking to the Jews and he has been speaking without identifying them as Jews until this point. And right now he is identifying them as a Jew. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law, and make your boast in God. Okay, 2.17, these are my comments. Um, Paul now names the people he's been directing his thoughts to since verse 2.1. As I said, he hasn't identified who he's speaking to. And it's very hard throughout the book of Romans to determine who is he actually speaking to at any given point in time. Uh, it's very similar to uh, Galatians, I think it's chapter 1, where he's speaking to Peter, and then he stops speaking to Peter at some point, and he just starts speaking to the general audience. And it's very hard to determine. Scholars debate about who Paul is directing his words to it and when they stop being spoken to Peter. Same thing here. You really don't know when he is speaking to the Jews and not until maybe a later point when he introduces the fact that he's been setting them up all along, which he's been doing. Well, Verse 2-1. would give you almost indication. The what? One, one five. Well, I understand, but one five isn't where it, it ended because he was talking to the Jews. No, he's and, talking, I thought he said Gentiles there. I understand, that's what I'm saying. So he's Jews and then Gentiles, and he's going back and forth. Yeah. But at this time, it started at one two one. Yeah. And so he's he's redirected again, but you don't know that until you get to this verse here. Okay. He's setting them up is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's hard, and scholars will even debate this. I say it's two one. somebody else might say he's been speaking to the Jews since... One, you know, the beginning of chapter one, but uh, it, they'll go back and forth over this. But I feel confident that he was speaking to the Gentiles, as you noted, and then he gets to chap chapter two, verse one, and he changes tact, uh -huh. and he does that as a setup because he wants them to think, oh, well, this is a general commentary when he's directing it to them. Anyway, um, he now names the people he's been directing his thoughts to since two one, the Jews. He has laid out his argument concisely concerning the nature of judgment for those with the law and those without the law. He's been talking about with and without the law. Now he gives three points which concern the Jews' attitudes. One, you are called a Jew. The term Jew is applied as a general name for the people of Israel. Okay, Jew comes from Judah, the tribe of Judah. All right, in the Old Testament, you've got this great distinction, which is Israel and then Judah, because they were the two kingdoms. They were all of Israel, all descended from Jacob, the Jews in particular, Judah, were descended from uh, the son of Jacob, Judah. But 
within Judah, and this is one thing that I, I'm going to deviate right now because people get so confused about this. They talk about the lost tribes of Israel. There are no lost tribes of Israel. There are people that were lost from Israel when they went into exile, but there are no lost tribes of Israel. This is a real sticking point for a lot of people because they'll argue, well, we're the lost tribes of Israel, and Israel is actually black people. It's not the people in uh, uh, um, Israel today. Or the lost tribes of Israel are the British colonies, and, you know, the Brits, they went up into the, the area. None of that is correct. People just want to insert themselves into something that they are not authorized. Okay? If you want to know if there are lost tribes of Israel or not, all you have to do is go to, right after the exile, 722 um, B.C., Sennacherib, king of Assyria, carried away the ten tribes, right? So from that point, if there are lost tribes, then they wouldn't be mentioned from any people in the tribes anymore. But if you go through the rest of the Old Testament, there are people from all different tribes that are not Judah, and they're named. All you have to do is you can do a word search in about two seconds to figure this out. There are people, I, I'm just giving an example. I don't know this for certain, but there are people from like Benjamin and people from Naphtali, and there are people from... Those are supposedly tribes that were exiled, and yet they're mentioned in there. There was always a remnant saved from all of the tribes of Israel, and they went down to Judah. Okay, In the New Testament, Paul is from Benjamin. All right, You've got uh, people from Simeon. You've got people from Judah. You've got the Levites. So you've got all of these tribes that are mentioned in the New Testament as well, indicating, and here's a point that people fail to understand, is that if you have one person from a tribe, a male, the tribe isn't lost. Remember when Benjamin went down to 400 people, I think it was, at the end of the book of Judges, right? Does it matter if it was 400 or 300 or 200 or 100? If there's one person from that tribe, then he can expand his seed and the tribe can be reinstated. So it doesn't matter if there's only one person from that tribe. That tribe still exists, okay? Having said that, Paul in the New Testament talks about the hope of the 12 tribes, and he does it right in the New Testament, and he says it in the present tense. This is the hope of our 12 tribes. When Peter writes, he writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, right? In the dispersion. So, no lost tribes. All I'm trying to give you is an idea of who the Jews are that's being spoken of, and the Jew became known as a syn synonymous for the term Israel. Okay, that's that's the point I wanted to make. Now, you had something. And, and it's a Asher, she said That's right. Fanna, the daughter of Anuel. Uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. I've got that backwards. Who was from the tribe of Asher. That's another one right there, and specifically named by tribe in the New Testament. We're not missing any of the 12 tribes. We are missing a lot of people from the 12 tribes, was, but no... Wasn't Benjamin in with Judah, though? Oh, absolutely. Benjamin was. Simeon was scattered within uh, Judah as well. So there are three tribes right there. That they were dispersed. No, I'm saying that they were named in the New Testament. Benjamin, no, Paul is from Benjamin. Assyria carried Benjamin away. But carried away ten tribes. But Benjamin was with Judah, so they weren't carried. Benjamin Some of them were. Huh? Some of them were. Some of them yeah, were. because they were on the border of Judah. So it doesn't matter. It's, it's irrelevant. The point is, if there's one person from Benjamin, you have a person that is the tribe still exists. Okay, okay that's what I'm saying. And so if they carried away Benjamin or some of Benjamin, it makes no difference. If they carried away some of Simeon, which were in, scattered within Judah, it doesn't make any difference. After the dispersion in AD 722, all of these tribes are named, and then in the present tense, they're named again by Peter, by Paul, etc. No lost 12 tribes. And people don't want to hear that. They argue over it. They claim that they're the 12 tribes. They don't have a right to that claim. 
God has sovereignly protected his people and he has kept them. So it's a sticking point, but it doesn't matter. Hi, how y'all doing tonight? Hi, how are you? Good, how Welcome you back. Thank a little you. warmer down here, isn't it? Yes, it is. But you got here just in time because it's going to get down to 40 degrees tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's like 48, <laughs> but still 40s. Pat, how are you tonight? Doing Good. Okay, so we're in uh, Exodus 2.17. Yes, sir. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father destroyed Nineveh. Yes. In 612. Right. And so that was automatically, all the Jews that had been brought over in 722 were automatically part of the Babylonian Empire at that particular time. That's right. That's right. So they, the ones that were there were there. And uh, right. when, uh, what's his name, um, Cyrus, king of Persia, gave the, uh, the command, anybody that wants to go back can go back. There are no lost 12 tribes. It is a misunderstanding and it is a mishandling of scripture to say that there are 12 lost or 10 lost tribes of Israel. There are not 10 lost tribes of Israel. There were 10 dispersed or uh, scattered tribes of Israel, but they are not lost. Okay, so we've established that. If you want to debate that over uh, an email or something, I'm talking to the people online, that's fine. I can show you exactly where that is in the New Testament. It doesn't change the fact that there are no lost tribes of Israel. Okay, um, so he's talking to the Jews. Uh, um, his first point is you are called a Jew. The term Jew is applied as a general name for the people of Israel. Abraham was a, Abraham was called a? Well, he was a Syrian. No, 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 I'm talking, what, what is the term that the Lord? Uh, Father of faith. Okay. Hebrew, that's what I'm getting at. Oh, Abraham is a Hebrew, okay? <laughs> so I'm trying to give you an understanding of the group of people. You're right, he came from, he was known as an Aramean or a Syrian. Okay, he came down into, from Ur of the Chaldees, he went down into the land, and in uh, Genesis 13, for the first time, he's called Abraham the Hebrew, or Avram the Hebrew at the time. Okay, so, so he's a Hebrew. Question here. Now, you, he was a Gentile. At what point did he become a Jew? When he was called Abraham, he never was a Jew. Abraham was never a Jew. Never a Jew. He okay. was never a Jew. He was a Gentile, and when he, <laughs> he, was the father of he is the father of uh, Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who is Israel. So he was never Israel, and he was, and that's why Paul uses that, and that's getting into a completely different book of the Bible, but he uses Abraham, the father of faith, okay, saying that those who are believing are sons of Abraham by faith. It's only those who have, are of faith that are true sons of Abraham, okay? And that's not talking about actual lineage, you know what I'm saying, as far as um, uh, father to son uh, genealogy. It's not what that's talking about. That's talking about who are the sons of faith, the sons of Abraham, the uh, type of faith. So there's two things going on in the Bible. But Abraham was never a Jew or Israel. He is a Hebrew. Then he became a Hebrew um, in Genesis, like I said, 13, first time he's called that. And Hebrew means, just so you know, Hebrew comes from the forefather. His name was um, Eber. Okay? And the name Eber and its root or its uh, derivative, which is Hebrew, means to cross over. That's where that term comes from. They crossed over from Ur of the Chaldees, over the river, and into another area. Eber was alive at the time. That's why when that, that move was made, and that's why they are called Hebrew or Eberites, is because it was, he was the one to cross over with his son and his grandson and his grandson, whatever, however many generations, they crossed over. And then it becomes not only a physical crossing over, but in Abraham, it becomes a spiritual crossing over. He is crossed over spiritually, okay? And so when we say we're a Hebrew, that means that you have crossed over. And that 
carries down into other things in the Bible, which I won't get into. But well, that's it has, it has nothing to do with the circumcision. Yes, it does because circumcision goes back to Genesis 17. Okay, which is Abraham's time. He was given, but I, I don't want to get too far off on this. Where's he called the Hebrew in 13? I think it's Genesis Chapter 13. 14, Four, okay, 14. Verse 13. 14, 13. Okay, I knew there was a 13 in there. 14, 13, he was called Abraham the Hebrew. Thank you. Now, hold on. Okay, but, well, let me go ahead and give you that just so that you have it, and then we'll get back into Romans. Abraham was uh, given the promise, go down, I'll give you a... a you know, land, whom you, uh, who blesses you will be blessed, and who curses you will be cursed, and all that, okay? From there, in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says that, you know, beyond all hope, Abraham was given a promise, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. That is the father of faith. He believed God, even when there was no child possible in his mind, he said, God said, I'm going to have a child, and I'm, I believe him. That is the standard that Paul uses in the book of Galatians to say that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And what you said about um, circumcision, I have to insert this and then we'll go on. Circumcision comes in Genesis 17, which is like 25 years later after he was declared righteous. So circumcision cannot bear on righteousness. And that's what Paul uses in the New Testament. He says, when was Abraham circumcised? Was it before or after? He says, not before, but after. And so circumcision can have nothing to do with righteousness. And he's talking to the Jewish people who are saying you have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. And he says, look at Abraham. None of that was true with him, and yet he was declared righteous by God. So you see what's going on. That's what's happening here. Now we're speaking to the son of Abraham, the, his son, and his son, Judah. Okay, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who is Israel, and then Judah. You are a Jew, but as I said, the term Jew and Israel are often used almost synonymously. Okay, they are the group of people that are the inheritors of everything. David was the king. Everything is going on in the land of Judah when everybody else has been scattered except for a remnant of all of the tribes that are not lost. Okay, you who are called a Jew, the term Jew is applied, as I said, as a general name for the people of Israel. Abraham was a Hebrew, and the name was applied to those of the line of promise even until Paul's time. So the term Hebrew still applies. It's used in certain contexts when you're speaking, when they say Hebrew, it is almost always, if not always in the Bible, referring to the group of people when it being explained to Gentiles. In other words, Gentiles are hearing that they are Hebrew people, or they are saying that they are Hebrew people. In other words, it's a badge of identification from Gentile to Hebrew, if you understand what I'm saying. It's not like I would say to another Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew. They wouldn't do that. It would be to a Gentile, I am a Hebrew. Okay. So if you check the times that Hebrews are, the word Hebrew is used, it will always have a Gentile connection to it. I am distinct from you. And the, uh, it says in um, Philippians 3, verse 5, it says... Um, Okay, Paul is making his claims. Okay, uh, three, he says, um, uh, I'm just going to start back up there. He's talking about the, the, the mutilators of the flesh, which are the Jews who are arguing they have to be circumcised and keep the law. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. The word, I think, in um, Greek is the concision. So he's making a pun on the word circumcision. Um, who worship God in the, um, we are the circumcision. 
And he's speaking to who? The Philippians are what? Are they Jews or are they Gentiles? Gentiles? They're Gentiles. And he says, we are the circumcision. Gentiles have never been circumcised. What is he talking about? That's right, circumcision of the heart. He's saying that circumcision of the flesh has no bearing. If you are circumcised in the body and you um, don't live as a Jew, according to what makes you a Jew, then you're as if you're uncircumcised. Yes, no bearing. He says the true circumcision is what is mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. It's mentioned by Jeremiah, circumcision of the heart. It's mentioned in the Old Testament to tell them if your heart isn't circumcised, your circumcision in the flesh has no bearing at all. And as a matter of fact, those who are not circumcised in the flesh but are sons of Abraham by faith are circumcised more than you are. Okay, so he says beware of the mutilation, the circumcision, worship. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. I wish the Hebrew Roots Movement people would read these things and just believe it. But what do they do? They diminish the writings of Paul. They argue against the writings of Paul because if you hold to Paul, then of course the argument is valid. There's, we're not under the law, but they don't want to do that. They want to work their way to heaven and they want to reject that. So, going on. Though I have might have confidence in the flesh, Paul's saying, I might have confidence in the flesh. Why? Because he was circumcised in the flesh. He said, um, uh, if anyone else thinks he may have, speaking of any Jew, have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he explains why. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just as any observant Jew would be. The stock of Israel. So he's a son of Israel. All right. Of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the great tribe, which was, I explained part of it. They, there's a lot of greatness in Benjamin. The first king of Israel came from Benjamin. Benjamin sided with David when they went off to war, when nobody else would. I mean, there's all these great accolades about Benjamin in the Old Testament. I'm of Benjamin. And then what does he say? A Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he's identifying himself as a Hebrew in contradistinction to the Gentiles. I am the guy that isn't like any of those unworthy Gentiles. And yet, he goes on, he says, and a Pharisee. Of all of the things that he could hold over there, everybody's heads, it's Pharisee. He had Okay, then he goes on, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. He'd done all of these things according to the code. He had done all of these things according to what all of the Jews thought was the preeminent thing to do. And he says, but what these things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, meaning they have no bearing on anything. Go back and look at that entire list. It has no bearing on anything. The only thing that matters is Christ. Christ. So, going on, you understand that now. He says, um, uh, uh, where was I? Um, Philippians 3, 5. However, the people are also called the Israelites. The Jews are also called Israelites, which he also said in Philippians. This is the group and the nation of the people. So you've got the Hebrew, which is a ethnic uh, identification. It's contra contrary to the Gentiles, all right? Then you've got the Israelites. This is their national identity, the 12 tribes of Israel. The number 12 in the Bible always signifies governmental structure and order, okay? Um, but even this was further refined to Jew. So you've got Hebrew, Israel, and then Jew. The term comes from the tribe of Judah, of whom Jesus descends. Judah became the prominent tribe of the people of Israel. I know I've already said this, but I'm now reading from my notes again. And after the Babylonian exile, the term Jew became synonymous with any person from any of the tribes of Judah. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we know Levites. They have identified the Levitical 
blood in the world today by DNA analysis, and yet they still call themselves Jews, okay? They have identified even the high priestly clan within Levi, and they still call themselves Jews. It has become an identification of the Jewish people, all right? And that was after the Babylonian exile, and it's still, the, but they will still say that they're Israel. So you see, they haven't lost their tradition, but they identify themselves as Jews, okay? Why? Because David was a Jew. He came from Israel. Everybody wants to associate themselves with the tribe where the great king came from. Even if they're not Judah, they are Jews, okay? So, uh, it, it's just a little bit of simplification, but it's giving you an idea of what's going on. Um, so, um, this term comes from the tribe of Judah, of whom Jesus descends. Judah became the prominent tribe, I said that, after Babylonian exile. Being called a Jew was considered an honor because they were the stewards of God's oracles and his chosen people. Okay, you see that, that down in uh, the land of Judah, after the exile, it was that area, that group of people who were the stewards of God's law. They were the, the, where the temple was. They're, Judah, to be a Jew, was what everybody wanted to identify with. Hello, how are you? Um, so, let's see here. Um, two, first you said you were called a Jew. Two, he said you rest on the law. Just as people, some people rest on being a Catholic. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'm a Catholic? You say, I'm a Christian. What is their answer? I'm a Catholic. They don't want to identify themselves with Christ. They want to identify themselves with the church, which to me is hugely sad. But it is almost universal in the Catholic church. When you talk to a Catholic, they will say, I am a Catholic first. It's like saying, uh, you know, a, a Jew may be an American. They won't say, I'm an American. They'll say, I'm a Jew first, and then I'm an American. Muslims do the same thing. I'm a Muslim, okay? And then they might be an American, or they might be, uh, you know, from Florida, whatever. But they identify themselves first, and that's what Catholics do. So, um, uh, or people will rest on their good works, or they rest on their blessings as evidence of God's favor. I'm highly favored. God loves me because I've got a lot of money in the bank, right? People will identify themselves with a thing rather than the person who is Christ, okay? That's why people are always, I, I get it a lot. What's your denomination? Well, we don't have one here. There's no denomination at this church, and I don't even say non-denominational because I was talking with somebody about this. I think um, uh, maybe it was at the Christmas dinner. It wasn't too long ago. Um, if you say you're non, non-denominational, non that's become a denomination. And so I don't even say that. I just say we don't have a denomination. We just pick up the Bible and go through it. And so I would rather be identified with Christ and with the Word of God. But one of the problems with saying that I'm, you know, I'm a, a follower of Jesus Christ is that who does that more than anybody else? Mormons. Good. That's exactly right. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So when people say... You know, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Immediately somebody says, well, he's a Mormon. So you, even that you can't do anymore. It's just, it, it, it's been so divided up. And so I would rather just say, we're not a denomination. We just open the Bible, read it, and we look for Jesus, you know? And uh, it's not that there's anything wrong with saying I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's just people will get the wrong mental image nowadays. It's just because people have co-opted everything. Everything's been co-opted. You know, if you say I'm... Um, if we were to say we were a, a Bible church, there's a lot of really nutty Bible churches out there. I don't know if you've been to some of them, you know, if you go through the South, but there are some that are, are way off because they're not Bereans, which is Berean Bible church. That's another one, right? Usually Berean Bible church is a person that is going to say, we're going to study the scriptures for what it has. But giving a title is 
it's it's really hard to do nowadays. Can you anyway, say independent Christian. Independent Christian. Well, I I suppose I don't I don't think there's a denomination called that, but I'll look it up online. There's probably ten of them. So I, I, I evangelical. Evangelical. Yeah, but you know that has taken such a bad taste in people's mouths lately. I had a guy um, that was visiting my dad just uh, a couple days ago, and uh, it was probably maybe a week and a half ago now. He was visiting, and uh, I I know him. I see him every year. He comes down to visit, and he um. He, he was in distress. How long ago was it that uh, Trump won? November. November. Okay, so it's been almost a month then. Trump had just won within about a week of that, and he was down talking to my dad, and he said, I'm in such distress, and this is a guy that's a Christian, he says. He says, I, I don't know where we're going to go in this nation. And he said, how do you feel about it? He turned to me, and I said, oh, I love it. I said, anything but Hillary. I said, Trump is an unknown quantity. We can't make a decision on whether he's a good or a bad president, but we didn't get her in there. And he was floored. And he says, how can that be? You're a Christian. And then he says, oh, yeah, you're an evangelical. It was like a, a, a bad taste in his mouth. Like, uh, I'm not a real Christian because I believe that Trump is better than, than Hillary. I, it just it, it, That's what people are perceiving. So even the term evangelical is, is, is a dividing factor extremists. now. I'm an extremist, yeah. Extremely and, devoted to the Lord. To the Lord. <laughs> to the Lord. He yeah. never read Matthew 28, and did he? All power. No. Oh, what? Go in all the world and evangelize. Right, evangelize. That's that's right. This guy never read that. No, he hasn't apparently, but that's 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 what an evangelical is, is a person that does that. Okay, let's go on. Um, uh, okay, so people will rest on being a Catholic, or they'll rest on their good works, they'll rest on their blessings of, of as evidence of God's favor. The Jews rested on having the law. That was what they trusted in, is we are the stewards of God's law. Old Testament and New, you're going to see that precept in their minds. We're highly favored because we are the stewards of God's law. And even to this day, there are people that are scribes that copy the Masoretic text line by line, and they think that they are favored by God because they are doing this thing. Nothing to do with Jesus. All they're doing is taking a law, and they're copying it, and they're saying that we're... Ob anyway, so this is how they identify themselves. Okay, so it became the law to them, to the Jews, as Paul is noting, an end in itself. Adherence to the law didn't matter. What mattered is that they were the stewards of the law. Okay, Not only are we God's chosen, but we have the law and thus are in a right standing with God. Today, if you ask a Jew, I had a person that came into this church one time, and I was talking to them, and this person, a friend of mine that I've known since second grade, is Jewish. And it was a girl, and she uh, has been to my sermon. She was there when I was ordained. She was there. Maybe I said this in this class. I said it to somebody recently. Anyway, um, uh, she's heard the gospel countless times. She sees it on Facebook every day, and yet she believes that all Jews are going to heaven because they're Jews. That's just what, and it, it, I, she's heard the gospel countless times. And from that jumping point, she says, well, maybe those that don't, uh, they kill aren't going to go to heaven. It, it was just her comment as she was walking out the door, right? Where does that end? Killing? Is it stealing? Is it when? When does something become too bad where you don't get to go to heaven? What is the badge that says I am acceptable before God? Is it killing? Because she said, but maybe not that. Is she the arbiter of what God has decided to do? Jesus said, "Be holy." Be holy as I am holy, right? And how do we do that? We can't. We have to have his righteousness imputed to us. Okay, so um, 
they think that being a Jew is an end in and of itself, and that is carried on all the way from the time of the law when having the law was an end in and of itself. And so they've always been this separate group, group of people trusting that they are favored by God simply because of who they are. Three, you make your boast in God. First, you're called a Jew. Secondly, you rest on the law. Third, you make your boast in God. The one true God... What was it that, uh, did anybody see the headline? Uh, it came out from a rabbi within the past couple days, and they said, the USA has abandoned us. And he said, we must now trust in the Lord. Right? Well, hallelujah, but what Lord? Right? Are they in Jesus? They're getting a little bit closer. They're getting a little bit closer, but they're still trusting that they are the Lord's favored people. They haven't come to the understanding that it's the Lord who came and walked among them. And that's why they're going to go through the tribulation period. Exactly as the Bible says, is because they have not come to that understanding. I felt the same thing you did as soon as I read that. Thank goodness for that. But they need to know who the Lord is. And that's what Paul is saying now. You make your boast in God. This guy is making his boast in the Lord. What Lord? Okay, the one true God revealed himself through the promised line, which eventually became the Jewish people, the Jews. They had his law, and his name rests on them. Israel, right? Means, what, anybody know what Israel means? Prince of God. Prince of God, some people take that. It actually means he struggles with God. Remember the struggle by the Jabbok River. Some people will call, uh, say that it means Prince of God, but more definitively, it's he struggles with God. Okay? Um, not only did God place the name El on them, Israel, okay? But he also revealed his other names to them. How did he reveal himself to Moses on the mountain? I am who I am. Genesis 3.14, right? Jehovah, I am. Yahweh, Yehovah, however you want to say it. All right? El Shaddai, I am God Almighty, or God All-Powerful, and etc. They could boast in that this God, who has revealed himself through their oracles and to their people, was surely on their side. So you see, Paul is setting them up now. You call yourself a Jew, you rest on the law, you make your boast in God. However, Paul has already shown that all men, both Jew and Gentile, need more than a name to be in favor with God. That's why he spent the last 16 verses setting them up. He's been saying all of these things, and now he's going to use those very things that he said against them so that they understand that they can't trust in those things. All right, They also need more than the law to be in favor with God. And they need more than knowing God's name and character to be in his favor. I'll stop right there because I have, you know, a, a couple weeks ago during one of the prophecy updates, I said that I made a comment about King James onlyism, and boy, did I get a lot of grief over that one. And I also said the only two groups of people that really give me a lot of grief are King James only people and Hebrew roots people because they're reinserting the law. They misuse Jesus' name. They, they anything but Yeshua, which is his name, Yeshua. You know, they say Yahshua or Yahashua or whatever. Anyway, I had a guy email me after I said that about the Hebrew Roots Movement. All I said is they give me a lot of grief. I didn't say anything other than that. But he, he started this long talk about how the name, and he, it wasn't Yeshua, which is Jesus' name, was something like Yahshua. He says, I know that this is true because in his name I can claim all this power. And he uses odd name, and he's going through this long rambling thing 
of why he's in the Hebrew Roots Movement. He's working his way to heaven because he has power that when he says this name, demons run from him and all this. It's crazy. But this is what the Jews were doing. I know the name of God. I have. When you know the name of a person in the Hebrew mind, you will have supposedly power over them. And that's why when Manoah, remember when Manoah, the father of um, uh, uh, Samson, said, asked the Lord, what is your name? And he says, why do you ask my name? Seeing as how it is wonderful. The word can mean beyond understanding, unintelligible. But he was asking for his name so that he could call on him and use that name for power in a later date. When um, uh, Jesus healed the deaf, the people were exceptionally astonished. Why? It's because they couldn't hear and they couldn't you know, in other words, he was healing somebody even beyond the ability to hear and call on a name. And so to them, that was astonishing. All right, This is the idea of having a name. We have the name of God. We have all of these names of God. We must be God's favorite because of that. And that's the point I was trying to make about that Hebrew Roots guy. He thinks he's got some type of power because he's got a name, which isn't even Jesus' name, that he can claim you know, all this crazy stuff over. So we have to be careful when we look at a name and understand that it is a definition of the being. When God said, I am who I am, he was defining his nature. Actually, it's better, I am that I am. Regardless, he's defining what his essential nature is like. But that doesn't mean that we can claim that and we can use that under our own authority. Okay, and that's important to understand because what do people do all the time with Jesus' name? They say, I heal you in Jesus' name, right? can't do that. You, you can't take something and co-opt it for your own authority. Go ahead. Who was there, those, those men who was calling on the Lord, using his name because right. Paul did? Yeah, the and seven sons said, of Sceva. We, we, know, we know who Paul is. We, know who Jesus, we don't know you. We don't know you. That's exactly <laughs> right. They whooped up on him. That's exactly right. <laughs> now, what we can do with Jesus' name is we can pray in Jesus' name and we can ask God the Father in the name of Jesus, but we can't use that as our source of power. That is his source of power. That is his nature. Yeshua means, anybody know what Yeshua means? Salvation. That's all. Yeshua means salvation. Okay, he came to save. Joshua. In the, Joshua. Well, yes, Joshua is actually Yahushua. The Lord is salvation. He is Yeshua, which simply means salvation. Okay, that's why Joshua was a type and picture of Jesus because Yahushua, the Lord, is salvation. Jesus came as salvation. He is the Lord. So all the way through the Bible, you're getting these puns almost. When Jesus, I hate to get too far away from this, but you'll get an understanding of what I'm saying. When Zechariah, little wee guy up in the Seymour fig tree, was invited to Jesus' house, right? Jesus went to his house to have dinner. And what did Jesus say to him? Surely today today salvation has come to this house. What was he doing? He was making a pun. Surely today, Yeshua, I have come to this house, and I have brought salvation. So he's making a pun. When Paul, we're going to get to it pretty soon in... uh, um, Romans, where I'll say it now and then we'll say it again, You'll, it'll make a squiggle if you hear it twice, when he says um, uh, who's, uh, a Jew whose praise is not from men but from God, you know when he says that in the book of Romans, Paul says uh, uh, who's a Jew whose 
praise is not from men, but from God. He's making a pun, which you would never get in the Greek. But from his Hebrew mind, the name Judah means praise or Jew, right? And so he's saying, whose Jew is not from men, but from God. And that's what he's using it against the Jews who would have understood that. The Gentiles had no idea what he was talking about, but he was talking to the Jews, saying that your praise isn't your own. It comes from God. Okay? Anyway, so these... You, know, you said Abraham was brought over. How did you say that? Eber means to cross over. Cross over. Well, Joshua crossed over with the people in the Canaan land. Into Canaan. That's yeah. right. So he... He crossed so over as well. That's over. right. So E-B-E-R. He was, uh, anyway, uh, somewhere down behind. It, Genesis. Genesis 10.25. 10.25, the table of nations, and he is the son of, you've got it right there? The descendants of Shem. Is he th the son or the grandson? I think he's the great-grandson of, of Shem, isn't he? Yeah, um, the, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber, okay, that's right. Uh, so The descendants of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. And then Arbashad became the father of Sheila. Sheila became the father of Eber. So it's there you go. Great grandfather. Great, yeah, great grand. There you go. Eber, Eber is the born. great grandson of Shem. There you go. Okay, so the Table so of the Nations. You Semitic know what is surprising Semitic. is the Table of Nations sermons that I did five years ago are probably the most watched sermons that I ever mm -hmm. did, and it's mm -hmm. just a listing of names. Mm -hmm. People really, when they understand. What's going on in the Table of Nations, it is as interesting as anything else. But, you know, you would think, oh, gosh, the story of, you know, Jacob or something would be, yeah, not many, not many views. But the Table of Nations, people understand. If I can understand what's going on here, I've got a picture of all of redemptive history ahead of me. All of it. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, uh, so they've got these names. They boast in this God who has revealed himself through their oracles. Paul has shown already that men, both Jew and Gentile, need more than a name to be in favor with God. They also need more than the law to be in favor with God. And they need more than knowing God's name and character to be in his favor. He's already shown this, and now he's bringing it back into their face in this verse. James explains this quite well in his epistle. Now how he brings in all three points. Abraham being a Hebrew, works of faith rather than merely having knowledge, and having a correct knowledge of who God is and yet not being right with him. He says in James 2, 18 through 22, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, so he's bringing in that right there. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So it doesn't matter if you believe in the one God. They can make that claim. The Jews can. It doesn't matter because even the demons believe in him, right? He goes on, But do you uh, want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead, right? And remember who James is writing to. He's writing to the Jewish people. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered, his, uh, offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with works, and by works, faith was made perfect? Now, that's a, a rather complicated set of verses. When you get to James 2.24 especially, it gets very complicated. It's very hard for people to understand. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but that's all we need right there is that James, what he writes to the Jews, is supporting what Paul is doing with the Jews right now in the book of Romans. Okay? A little life application for you, and we can go on. Um, again and again, we see in Scripture that what God desires is works, right? Faith. Right. Faith. It's faith. 
wondering if anybody was still awake here, and you're all awake. So God wants faith. That's that is it. There's nothing. The what? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't matter what works you do. It doesn't matter if you are doing good works. If they're not of faith, they mean nothing. It has to be something that you are doing in faith. And if you don't do any works at all, except have faith in God, that is a work in and of itself. If you believe God's promises, as I said, you could be in a bed, in a hospital, completely unable to move, totally immobile, unable to do any work at all. And if your mind is speaking to the Lord and you are speaking to the Lord in faith about his provision that he has given to you through the person of Jesus Christ, you are getting far more rewards than people that are out there doing nothing for the Lord and having no faith in what they're doing. 100% a person that does no work at all in that hospital bed is of far more value to God because of their faith than anything any person could do without faith. Anything. John said, this is the work that you believe in him. I think That's right. John uh, 629. Is it 629? I think 630. Pull yeah. it up and let me know. Yeah, so it might be five. I think it's 629. But anyway, um, uh, you go there and I'll go there and one of us will find it first. How's that? Um, and I could be completely wrong. This is the work of God that you believe in. There you go. Yes, Hey, I got it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Thank you. I just, I, whatever. Okay, here we go. So, um, uh, faith without uh, works. Uh, our family, our denomination, our nation of birth is irrelevant to a right standing with him. And unfortunately, Catholicism is steeped in that. They think that being a Catholic is what gets them the ticket to heaven. And I can say that openly because although they're not here tonight, many people here that come to this class from time to time were ex-Catholics. And, oh, we've got one right here. And that's their attitude. Okay, so you understand that. It, it, I am identifying myself with a denomination rather than with Christ. And that is going to get me to heaven. It won't do it, okay? Um, having a Bible in our house and even being a teacher of that Bible means nothing without faith in what it states. And knowing all about God in our heads means nothing if we don't have a relationship with him. Let us strive to put aside all externals, all externals. You're a person lying on a bed in a hospital completely unable to do anything at all. Focus on what is inside. A heart and an attitude which demonstrates love for the Lord. That is the, the greatest of all. I, I am absolutely certain of that, that there is nothing we can give God more than that. And everything that we do for him with that attitude will be counted as rewards. But the person lying in that hospital bed, unable to do any of those things, if their mind has it in their heart to do those things, and it's done in faith, even in their mind, I know the Lord will reward them. He's not going to take away rewards from somebody that can't do anything. It's their faith which he will reward. Okay? 218. Um, let me go there really quickly because I've lost my page again. And um, Romans 2, verse 18. Let's see here. Faith. Just keep remembering that. Um, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read um, 17 again. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. 18. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. Okay? Verse 18. There are two general meanings of the word approve, what it could mean in this verse. The first would be to approve of. So let me read that again. 
and know his will and approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. The other would be to prove or to discern between. So it could be, um, and know his will and, and discern between the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. The word could go either way, okay? The first would be, I've said that either would make sense in the context of the verse, and it should be noted that former uh, that the former would merely be the result of exercising the latter, okay? In other words, if you are able to discern between two things, then you know which to approve of. One is good, one is bad, okay? So the former will inevitably lead to, uh, yes, exercising the latter. Okay, in the overall context... And because one eventually results in the other, it would be logical that Paul is speaking of discernment here, discerning between things. This type of discernment is found in the testing of metals by fire, the word that he's using. When they're heated, they are proven pure, found to be mixed with lesser metals or defiled by impurities. So you've got a a thing full of you know, uh, gold in your hand, a, a, a brick full of gold, and you take it and you put it in the fire, and the fire starts burning it, you're going to find one of three things. Either the gold is pure, or it's got other metals that are mixed into it, or it's actually got... When I was up in Alaska mining gold for a summer, you would quite often find gold in a nugget, say it was this big, and it would be quartz. And beautiful. I made a couple, for one for Hedico. I bet you she doesn't have it anymore. I've never seen her wear it, but I, beautiful. Uh, it took all summer to find this stuff, and I, never, and I gave one to my daughter a, a big piece of quartz and had gold running all through it. Okay, but you can see that's not pure. It's got impurities in the gold. The gold itself, though, uh, was very high-grade gold in the 40 Mile River. It was like 98.3% pure or something. Anyway, um, uh, so you've got the gold, but you've got impurities in there. And quite often, you'll find a little piece of gold, and inside is the the, uh, quartz, and you don't even know it because it's completely encased in gold. The gold has protected the quartz that didn't break away. Okay, so you never know until you put it in the fire. So you've got either pure gold or you've got gold that's mixed with other metals. And uh, does anybody know what is gold magnetic? No, because we think of uh, a ferric metal, something with iron in it uh, is magnetic. But it's actually not true. Women's neck. Well, that's a good one. Uh, Women's necks are uh, magnetic. But actually, there is another substance which gold is magnetized to. It's mercury. Did you know that? If you have mercury and there's gold, it'll gravitate to it and it'll stick to it, just like a magnet will stick to iron metal. And the reason why uh, they... I shouldn't say the reason why, but what they used to do is before people mine gold the way we do now, they would go like up to Alaska and the river is frozen. And they would break through the ice and they dig all the way down to the bedrock when the river is completely frozen. Okay? <laughs> this was hard work these people did. And then they would set a fire in the bedrock. They'd cut down trees and they'd set a fire and it would cause the bedrock to crack. Right? And then they would be able to get these big boulders out of the bedrock. And the gold is laying down where this boulder had been taken out because it seeps down in between the cracks of the bedrock. Okay? They would take mercury and they would drop it into this hole. And the mercury would attach to the gold, and then they would know where the gold is. And so that is, if you go there, even to this day, all of these rivers up in Alaska, there is mercury down there with the gold, or actually some places where there's just mercury, okay? And so it's toxic, but as long as it's not disturbed, it doesn't poison anything. But if it gets disturbed, then it gets into the environment again. 
Having said that, um, what they would do afterwards is they would take the gold with the mercury in it back to their cabin and they would burn it to burn off the mercury and then you'd have gold again. What's the problem with that? Vapor. Vapor. They went insane. Countless, countless gold miners in Alaska went crazy because the mercury would, and that's a problem with these lights here. They have mercury in them. You get enough in you, you can go crazy. All right? So which would explain why I'm nuts. But anyway, um, uh, so, it, but there was impurities in the gold that they had to burn out. And that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm just giving you a little life application in the process. But don't burn mercury, especially in an enclosed place. If you do it, you want to do it outside where it can go off into, you're smart. How did you know that? She's, she's got all kinds of knowledge. Anyway, um, so um, it, it, lesser metals defined by, defiled by impurities. The fire is what reveals the purity, the nature, and the quality of the solid by breaking it down into a liquid. Jesus uses the same term in Luke 12, 56 in a manner revealing discernment. Luke 12, verse 56. Hang on here. Where are we? John, Luke 12, 56. says, um, Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you cannot discern this time? Yes, and why even of yourselves do you judge what is right? When you go without your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort so he's telling you to be discerning. He's saying you've got to be able to tell what is good and what is bad. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, the people that he was addressing could walk out from morning to morning and tell what the weather would be like by the color of the sky. And I get that even today. When I take my sunrise photo and I post it on Facebook every single day, if there's a red sky, what is one of the comments I see somebody make? Red sky next morning. Sailors, Sailors take, take warning. warning. Somebody inevitably says that when I post this, this uh, a, a big red sky. And then when I used to take, I don't stay up that late anymore, but when I used to take sunset photos, I'd put them out there and they'd say red sky at night, sailors delight because you can discern what is going on by the atmosphere when the sun rises and when the sun sets, okay? And people have remembered that. So he would say, when the light of the world came and revealed his glory, they were blinded and they were unable to make a right discernment about who he actually was. They can walk outside, they can see it's gonna be a nice day or a crummy day, but they couldn't tell the incarnate word of God walking among them. They were blinded to it. Right? Uh, in a like manner, Paul shows that the Jew, putting his trust in the law as an end in and of itself, boasts in God because they know his will from the law. This is done regardless of whether they actually have faith in God or not. Right? This is, uh, they know what he expects from a mechanical sense and therefore can discern between what is good and what isn't. They've got the law, they can make the discernment. They obtain this because they are being instructed out of the law. That's what the law is there for. It's to tell you what's good and what's not. The word instructed here from the Greek is a long word. It's katachomenos. All right? It is where we obtain our word katachumen. And I may be pronouncing that wrong, but when somebody is catechized, uh, catechized, catechism, uh, catechism okay? Mm -hmm. um, one who is being instructed. Okay. So that word has followed out of the Greek of the New Testament into what we're supposed to be doing. I'm kind of negligent in this, but there is a uh, 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 pastor back in England, back in like the 17, 1800s, and he had a small little church, and he every single year would go to every single parishioner's house once a year, 
and he would take them through the catechism of that church and he would tell them all of the essential points of doctrine about Jesus Christ, the atonement, the, I, everything. And I thought, man, what, you know, back then though, you didn't have emails, you didn't have things that uh, uh, took up your time and plus he probably got a free meal in the process, but it was still a wonderful thing that he did. And if pastors would take that kind of care today to be willing to answer questions and to instill in people the value of the word of God and right doctrine, we wouldn't be in the trouble we're in. We wouldn't have all of these things, but it, it, it is a rare form of person that's willing to spend the time to counsel people properly, to go to the word of God and to say, this is God's word and these are the essential doctrines that the Lord expects us to know. And there aren't many of them, but they can get very complicated. And so you need to, with care, go through them. And it was amazing that this guy did it year by year. Um, anyway, um, so... Um, uh, the instruction they receive helps them to understand what is right, but he will show that it doesn't guarantee that the knowledge will be transferred into right action. Once again, you can have all the head knowledge in the world and not be a saved Christian because you haven't applied the knowledge to the heart. As an example, a judge may know the law like the back of his hand, but this doesn't mean that he will actually obey the law that he knows. Time and time again, we read of judges who are arrested for committing the very crimes that they judge others for, right? It happens three, four, five times a year. We've got a whole bunch of judges that have been in Washington for the past eight years that all should be in jail for committing crimes that they are supposed to be the ones determining, you know, uh, guilt or innocence. So, um, uh, oh, I was just going to get you one, but we've got like ten of them going to you. Uh, okay. Um, okay, anyway, these judges, this is, this is a judge who does not obey the law, okay, but he knows the law. These judges know the law, his will. Two, they agree with the law because they judge others using it. They approve of the things that are excellent, as Paul would say. And three, because they have been schooled in law, which means instructed out of the law. So they've met all of the requirements that Paul has said. All of this, however, is no guarantee of right living. We're going to see this as we continue. And it's not just judges. Pastors all over the world, some of them know the Bible much better than I do. They preach the Bible faithfully, and yet they end up, something bad happens. They end up in jail. They end up being kicked out of their church because of something. There's one guy, just a year ago, maybe two years ago now, and I feel so bad. Why would he do this? He's a pastor of a church, and it wasn't a small church. I don't remember the number, whether it was 400 or 4,000, but it wasn't a small church. And he told all of his congregation he would boast about being a Navy SEAL. And you think about something that can be verified, and he lied over being something he had no right to claim. And you think he knows the Bible? He's uh, preaching the Bible, he's telling people how to live properly, and yet he's lying to them about something that is so unimportant. If you think about it, what do you need to claim you're a Navy SEAL for? I, I can't understand it. Now, if he actually held the title, if he was actually a Navy SEAL, like I was, then it would be great. I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, but I just feel so bad that something like that would happen. And, you know, it ended his job over something so insignificant. It just, it's heartbreaking. Anyway, no guarantee of right living. And we're going to see this as we continue with Paul's words. Um, life application. What is your level of Bible knowledge? And I know the people in this class have a, a, a good, strong level of Bible knowledge. Have you read the Word many times? 
Have you studied the original languages? I'm not saying that's necessary. I'm, in any way, shape, or form, I am not saying you ever have to study the original languages. I'm just its asking a question. Have you been schooled in proper theology? If yes, big deal. Right? Big deal. If you don't align your life with what you know, having the law, knowing the Bible, understanding the nature of God, none of it means diddly if you have no heart for the Lord. It means nothing. Each day, remember to return to childlike faith in the Lord, then go back and apply the meat of his word to your wholesome diet. Okay, it doesn't make people brag about having a doctorate in this and a doctorate in that in theology and, you know, in soteriology or whatever. It makes no difference if they don't have a heart for the Lord. There are Jehovah's Witnesses that know the Bible back and forth. They can quote that Bible like you can't believe. And they are so caught up in legalism. They're so caught up in their, their cult-like attitude. It doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. So it, don't ever trust anybody that boasts in their knowledge if they don't have a heart for the Lord. And it's, it, sometimes it's really hard to tell. Like I say, that guy sat in that church and he had to have been a good preacher to have a big congregation. And he lied to him about something so simple. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Anyway... Verse 2.19. Wait a minute. Yes. Approved unto God. The what? Timothy says to be approved by God. By God. Study to be approved by God. They were approving things, but... It wasn't by God. Not by God. That's right. They were proving themselves, their knowledge of the Bible. They were proving themselves of being a Jew and of all of the other things, but they weren't approved of God. And that continues on to this day in Israel, in the church. It happens all over the world because people don't have a heart for the Lord. I just, it's its unimaginable, but it's human nature, you know, and especially if you can claim your way into healing people on a stage with a white suit on you and you can make millions of dollars and have a Learjet, it's tempting, isn't it? Right? I mean, if you know that you can be a very wealthy person nation that are going to lose everything, where's your hope after that? Where's your hope? I'm the, I don't want to scare anybody. I just think that's reality. I don't know how this economy is going to survive, regardless of who is president. I just don't know. And where is your priority when all of your money is gone and all the security that you thought was there and all the vacations that you had planned aren't going to happen? Where is it? If you don't have Jesus, I don't know how people get up in the morning without him. And I don't know how I did it for 36 years. I just, look, I got head shaking back here. I just don't know how it happens. Yeah. Okay, but maybe that's what we need in this country is to redirect and to have a collapse like that so that we find out what is important. Um, I, 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 what is it? Maybe it's a sermon, something I was going to use this for, and I'll tell you because it just came to my mind. Oh, I know it is, Prophecy Update. This will be in a Prophecy Update in a couple weeks if I can fit it in. Um, but it, it's something that some of you don't watch the Prophecy Updates like Tom Alley over there. <laughs> so um, he's not a computer guy. But okay, does anybody, has anybody heard what went, sales skyrocketed on one particular thing after Hillary Clinton lost? Does anybody know what it was? It skyrocketed. Guns? No. Well, guns, yeah, guns have gone up on the left. They've been buying them now. But that was on the right before. So the gun sales haven't gone up except in a different category. Something skyrocketed when Hillary Clinton lost. Cheesecake. The people ate themselves out of their sadness. Ah. It literally, sky, like 74% increase in cheesecake. And I will give you an example. When I saw that... 
I don't know what it is, but I sure like cheesecake too. But I wasn't buying it for grievance. I'll tell you, grieving. But I, I will tell you an example so that you can understand where people's thought processes go. Is when I had my store right down the road. The worst month, the worst month that I could possibly had was the those extra weekends. It was it was just a very short month. It was a very stressful month, and yet it was the best sales month I ever had because of 9/11. Self-medicating. People were medicating themselves by coming in and buying all kinds of stuff. They were buying anything to get their minds off of what had happened, and that's the cheesecake thing that happened with Hillary Clinton. And that's what we do is we. We don't have our priorities straight. Instead of going to the Lord, we go to cheesecake, right? Comfort and so, food the, instead of the comforter. That's right. Comfort food instead of the comforter. And maybe I'll use that in a sermon Sunday. That was great. <laughs> um, so there you go. Verse 219. I'm going to start with 17 again so we have the context. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law um, and make boast in God and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, verse 19, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Okay? This is a continuation of the previous verse, and it will carry on through the next verse. The Jews rested in the law. They made their boast in God, and they knew his will. All of those are true. We don't need to debate whether it's true or not. They are true. They were able to discern what was right because of their instruction out of the law. I've got the law. It says don't commit adultery. I know it's wrong to commit adultery. That's what the law is for. As I said, if you are in a town that has no speed limit, you can drive any speed you want, and you're not guilty before the law. But as soon as the speed limit is posted and you violate that speed limit, you are now guilty before the law. They were given the law. They understood what made you guilty, and they were able to instruct out of that law. Okay? Because of this, they were confident that they were a sufficient guide to the blind and were a light to those who were in darkness. But the law is not an end in and of itself. It is only a means of understanding God's perfection and man's fallen state. As Paul says later, nobody can live out the law. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And he tells us in a variety of ways that truth. Darkness, as used in the Bible, often refers to a state of spiritual blindness and the life apart from God. When a person trusts that they can meet the demands of the law apart from reliance on God's mercy, it only shows self-blindness. They're still in darkness. That's why the Day of Atonement was given, is because they need that mercy. That was the purpose of giving them a Day of Atonement, and they didn't understand that. This inevitably will result in leading others astray as well. Hebrew Roots Movement. It's a classic 101, school 101 theology. If somebody is in the law and they are in darkness and they say you need to follow in the law, then you're bringing them into darkness as well. It, it, that's just the way of the world. If you teach somebody that they need something which they don't need, they are now in darkness. And it goes exactly what... I said earlier, and I hate to keep beating this over people's head, but they need to understand that. When you say the King James onlyism is true, you are in darkness on that issue. Because it's not true. It's something that somebody has made up. And you're bringing somebody from your state of darkness in with you. That's all that's happening. Okay? Um, uh, where was I? Okay, so uh, it only leads to self-blindness, and this will lead others astray as well. Jesus shows us this. 
time and time again. And it is exactly what happened to the leaders of Israel, such as seen in Matthew 15, in the 14th verse. Okay, Matthew 15. He says, um, Matthew 15, verse 14. Where am I? Um, Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch, right? All you're doing is you're bringing somebody along with you from your state of blindness, and they're following you, and you're both going to fall into the ditch. Let the blind lead the blind, okay? The light which is found in Scripture is only suitable for someone who is willing to use that light for self-illumination first. Because if you don't illuminate yourself, then you're just going to lead people down whatever crazy mm-hmm. path that you are on with Scripture. And I was thinking about this today, and I, I, this, I don't mean to make this sound like boasting, so please don't think of it that way. I, I, I want to try to say this without making it sound like it, but when I met the Lord, I had 10 hours a day for two years to do nothing but read the Bible. I had a store, you know, in Florida, especially during the summer, you don't have a lot of customers, and the store that I had, it was very sparse, it was sales that would come just at certain times. So all day, all day, every day, I read the Bible. I had no instruction, I had nobody to tell me what to do, okay? And that's why I knew the Bible, I would say, pretty well, but I could not have told somebody how to come to Jesus to save my life. Now, if you understand what I'm saying, I've got all of this knowledge. I have pursued God. Now what I need is instruction in how to apply what I know. The problem is, and once again, I don't want to make this sound like a boast, but I want you to understand how I feel about this issue. If you do not know the Bible and you go to a seminary that has bad doctrine, you will always have bad doctrine because you don't know the Bible and you can't discern what is right and what is wrong. You are at the mercy of whatever your teachers are teaching you. If you know the Bible before going to seminary, you will be able to discern right from wrong as to what you're being told. Okay, do you see that? When I knew the Bible, I still didn't know how to teach it. I still didn't know how to explain it. And so one day somebody led my wife to the Lord. I didn't know how to do it. I knew all what the Bible said, but I didn't know how to apply it. And so I watched this person, and the next day, I started telling people about Jesus using the same pattern and then modifying it for each person as you watch their eyes and you see. But until I knew how to explain it, I didn't know how to explain it. And I, I, t- I became passionate about telling people about how to be saved because I saw somebody do it, and I saw that it works. Because this is a person I really wanted to know, the Lord. And I didn't know how to tell her. All I could say is, this is true. I, I, I know that this book is true, but I didn't know how to explain it. And then what I did, and this is what I recommend to anybody who has first read the Bible many times. If you've done that and you know what is proper and you know what is correct in this, without jumping ahead, is get a sign that says Bible question and answer and go out on the beach or go out to your local park and put the sign up and say, I'm going to answer Bible questions. Because... I had no idea how to answer a single Bible question when the first person walked up. And people would ask me, and I'd say, oh, I know where that is. And oh. and it took months of looking like a fool before I finally knew what people were going to ask, and I knew how to respond to them. And I learned more sitting on the beach, already knowing the Bible, but I learned more about the Bible and how to explain it to people sitting on the beach with a sign than I have ever been able to learn in any other context, in college or in anything else. Because people ask questions, and they they want to know the answer. 
But now here's the problem. If I don't know that properly, I'm now giving them bad light, right? And that's the point here, is if you are in darkness, you are only going to teach darkness. If you know this word first, then everything else will come into place. But too many people don't know the Bible. And that's why prophecy sites in particular, I, I know that because there are lots of them out there, they don't know the Bible at all. All they know is a few key portions of the Bible and they build their theology themselves. They have no training in the Bible. They don't. They cannot take the Bible and put it together as a whole and say, I know this is wrong because of that, right? That's a problem. You need to make sure first, before you go out and teach the Bible, that you know the Bible and then get trained on how to teach the Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a step, okay? And like I said, I don't want to make that sound like boasting, but I'm just very thankful to the Lord that I could know the Bible before I went to the other steps because if I didn't have that, Whatever they taught at college would have been it. That would have been it. And so just be careful what you learn, even under me. Always check what you hear. All right. And I love when people email me the next day and say, do you know you said this? And I want to know about that because I know they're listening and I know they want to know the truth. And they've gone and checked after me as well. And now we flesh it out by email or something. Anyway. Um, Berean Christian. Berean Christian. Thank you. As the psalmist implored, so should each person who desires to be instructed from God's word. And I'm going to read it to you. Psalm 119, which we open the class with every single word, week. Psalm 119, verse 18. Where is it? Verse 18. Oh, I've already passed it. Verse 18, it says, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open my eyes, Lord. All right? Um, the Jewish people had every assurance that they were the stewards of God's oracles and that through them supposed superiority over the Gentiles. However, because of their incorrect use and instruction of it, Jesus shows the opposite was the result. He says in Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Exactly what I was saying. They know what's right, they know what's wrong, and yet they misuse it, and they twist it to the point where that person will never be saved. Let me tell you about God's favor, and they're never coming to know Jesus Christ because they've manipulated Scripture. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, go on down the line of all of the big cults out there, exactly what they're doing. They go across land and sea. You know the Mormons are everywhere. Everywhere that you can... Did you have them in China? Did you see them there? They're everywhere. They'll teach for, for, for free. For free. They go into a country. They build churches for free. They wear the same stupid clothes everywhere they go. The churches <laughs> all look the same. But I have to tell you what. They are, they are organized. They have a message. And they stick to it. And they are everywhere. And yet they're making people twice the son of hell as they are. Because they're bringing them from darkness into darkness. That's all they're doing. But you know what? It, it, that's one thing. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, these people are really well trained. It's very sad because they're mistrained, but they're really well trained. Um, Tony, I had two of them to come to my sister's house in Virginia. I said, I'll talk to them. <laughs> and I said, you guys need to open up Galatians chapter 1. Yeah, exactly. An angel from heaven. And they says, that's in the Bible? I said, here, read it. Read it. 
Oh, we're going to have to go back and find out the, what with the elders. That. Yeah. That's the first thing that a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon will do. They will not go to the Word of God. They'll say, I need to check with the elders. Yeah. They are unwilling to step outside of the darkness that they're in. I, very few will ever leave those cults. Very few. And when they do, they're ruined. They, they don't want anything to do with re religion. They don't want anything to do with the Bible. They don't want anything to do with anything because they've been ruined by these people. It, it, it's so heartbreaking. But, you know, we do it to ourselves in this world. Um, so we'll go on. Uh, the law, um, I, yeah, the law never had the intent or purpose of making people perfect before God. It was never the intent of the law. As noted in the previous verse, the fact that the Day of Atonement was given as a part of the law proves this. What the law was meant to do was lead the people to a humble walk before their God in eager expectation of the coming Messiah, who would reveal the glory of God to the world. This was prophesied in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament, Matthew 4.16. And, you know, I, I, I do these citations, and sometimes I hope I'm on the right one. Matthew 4, verse 16 says, um, I'll tell you what's on my mind here in one second. The what? You're going to get Galatians 3 also. Well, we can if you want. you got to turn there. Matthew 4.16. Yes, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. That's from Isaiah 9, 6 through uh, 7. And um, uh, as I said, the Old Testament told them it was coming. The New Testament confirms it's coming. Um, and the reason why sometimes my citations are wrong, I'll, I'll put down a verse, is because I'm looking at the Bible and I see Matthew 4 at the top of the page, and I'm actually looking at Matthew 5 or vice versa, and so sometimes I really blow it. But um, anyway, go ahead and read what you wanted to read. Therefore the law has become our tutor. Tutor. Lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Justified by faith. It is only a tutor. It had several purposes. I went through seven of them in a sermon about two months ago. The purposes of the law. What can we determine the law was given us for? And in the end, it was not to make anybody perfect. It was never its intent before there. Um, so... Little life application. I think we'll be able to get this last verse, and we'll, we'll, because it's important. But yeah, I'm going to rush through this, and we'll get through with 2:20 as well. When you read the Bible and see stories of people continuing grievous sins, do you do you see yourself next to them, or do you see them as more vile than you? And not just the Bible. You know, you got people out walking around the world, and you say, "Well, that guy's doing this," and guess what? I did all those things ten years ago. Right? Does anybody do that? You say, gee, that person's really a dirtball, right? <laughs> they might be a dirtball, but so were you before you met the Lord. It's just the way of the world. There, but by the grace of God go I. That's right, but by the grace of God go I. So, um, uh, do you see them uh, yourself next to them, or do you see them as more vile than you? Understanding that erring in any part of the law breaks the entire law, and therefore you are as guilty as they are. The judgment they received is the judgment you deserve. Take time today to thank God that your punishment was transferred to Jesus. It was a high cost paid for your sin. Okay? Now, I don't mean to say that we're all dirtballs here, but you understand what I'm saying. When we look down on our fellow man who was caught in sin, we have forgotten where we probably were at some point in our life, or maybe we still are. Okay? And that's Paul say in Ephesians, such were you. Such were you. That's right. But you were washed. You were clean. You were sanctified. That's exactly right. Okay, 220. I'm going to read all four again. And uh, that'll keep us in context. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, 
and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Okay, verse 220. This is the final portion of the idea which began in verse 17 at the beginning of the class. Those who rested in the law, the Jews, made their boast in God because they knew his will from the law. We talked about that a while ago. I know not to commit adultery because it says don't do it. Because they were the law's stewards, they could make value judgments about what is morally right and wrong. Just like the judge, he is the steward of the law. The attorney general should be the one that takes the law and says we're going to apply it in this manner. It hasn't been happening in America. This resulted in a confidence that they could guide the blind and illuminate the darkness of those without the law. This allowed them to become an instructor of the foolish, as Paul says, and a teacher of babes, as he says. They believed they were so qualified because they had the form of the knowledge and truth in the law. So I've got this knowledge. I can instruct the foolish. I can instruct the babes, right? In Scripture, the word foolish is normally associated with one of two types of people. The first is one who is uneducated in a matter, and the second is someone who is morally deficient or wicked. They may know a, a, a something, but they're morally deficient, and that person is foolish. If I am a preacher, and I'm doing something morally deficient in my off time, God would call me foolish. All right, So I can either be uneducated, or I can be somebody that is educated, but I am not adhering to God's standard. That's foolish. All right? Um, so, in this verse, Paul is speaking of the first, someone lacking the form of knowledge and truth in the law. They simply are foolish because they don't know the law. The term a teacher of babes is the literal meaning of the words, but it symbolically means someone who is as ignorant about a matter as a baby. Ask a baby if they know what 10 plus 10 is, and they have no idea, because they don't know what the number 10 is, and they don't know what the plus symbol means. So you're looking at them, and you, you say, well, you're foolish, you don't know that. That's the idea of what he's trying to say. These people have no idea about anything. To the Jew, everyone else who lived without law would fall into this category. Everybody. They did not have God's law. We know as adults, your knowledge is that of an infant. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2, uses terminology which reflects this type of understanding. He says, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you're not able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able. They're babes in Christ, right? Um, the same concept is expanded on in Hebrews chapter 5, where it says this. Hebrews 5, verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews. That's right. Hebrews, who should know these things. They've got to be taught the principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both evil, good, and evil. He's speaking to people that don't have the correct knowledge. That's why in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are called what? The children of Israel. They had the law. They were children. 
in the New Testament, they're called sons of God. They have now developed. And he's saying to the Jews that have come to Christ, you're still babes, you're like children. You need to be instructed all over again, okay? It's a picture of the end times Jews, which is coming soon to a theater near you. Having seen this in real applications, we now turn to 1 Peter verse 2, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2 verses 1 and 2. Let me read that to you. 1 Peter 1, Hebrews, come on, keep going, Charlie, James, Peter. 1 Peter 2 verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and speaking all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Right? So that's practical application for him. There we see that all those solid foods which adults eat and which represents development and wisdom is important. It is not the entire picture. Peter shows that the Bible is actually something meant for all, but is considered pure milk. This is something for babes as well as adults. We've got two more minutes. What is being conveyed is that the Bible is pure spiritual milk, acceptable to all people of all ages, but increased knowledge of it moves one from being a spiritual infant to a fully developed person. The problem Paul is addressing in these verses, and which will be explained in the verses to come, is that Having all of the Bible knowledge in the world does not necessarily lead one to maturity. Only when it is properly applied and acted on does this occur. The Jews Paul speaks of had their knowledge to impart to others, but they did not apply it to themselves. Excuse me. The Geneva Bible states the situation this way. I love the little quotes that the Geneva Bible gives from time to time. They say, as though he said that the Jews under a pretense of an outward serving of God attributed all to themselves when in reality they did nothing less than observe the law. Mere observation of the law accomplishes nothing without an internal change in the person. Therefore, like Peter stated, the Jews, all of us indeed, need to desire pure, the pure milk of the word. By searching the purity of the law, we will naturally be led to a close and personal relationship with the law giver, our Lord Jesus. And life application, we're done. Head knowledge is great, and we need to increase our knowledge of the word every day. As we do, people, we become spiritually mature people. However, we need to continually search out the intent behind the knowledge, a personal walk with Jesus. Let our hearts be aligned with our actions so that we will be pleasing vessels ready for the Lord's use. All right, let me close this in prayer today. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this wonderful book of Romans, and thank you for the, the details which are found even in just a few verses, four verses which are meant to illuminate our minds to what the Jews had missed, that what you have done in the law is there for a good purpose, but it can be so easily misapplied. Help us to apply the law properly in our lives and to lead us directly to the foot of the cross where the grace of all of the ages is poured out in the blood of Jesus Christ for us. Thank you for that wonderful gift, Lord. We do pray for those that are online right now that are attending, and we thank you that for their presence. We pray that they've been instructed as well today, and hopefully they found something that will bless them. And that for anybody else that watches on YouTube later, we would thank uh, you for them attending, and we would pray also that they would also be instructed out of your word. And thank you for each person here, and uh, we... Uh, uh, those that we won't see before the uh, new year, we'll wish all of them a happy new year. And uh, 
We'll pray that this will be the year that you send your son Jesus back to take us home. Well, we're sure waiting on that, Lord. But thine will be done in all things. And we'll be patient, if maybe impatient, as we wait on that day. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In his beautiful name, Jesus our Lord, amen. Uh, okay, let me uh, back this up so you can say uh, goodbye. And if you want to take any cookies home, please do. Let's see here. We're going to go to break. Um, break. And that'll back up. <laughs> and there we go. We love you all. We want you to have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you next uh, next week or maybe on Sunday. Okay, that's off. That's done. And that's done. Okay.